0: To SUP FM, the podcast for stand up battle borders everywhere. So, with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon.
1: Hi, Simon. How are you doing?
0: Ha. Ah, hey. oh, good, thanks. Hey, hey, hey. Aloha. How's uh, how's <laughs> life in Portugal? I uh, I understand uh, you managed to get out for your first paddle this week.
1: Yeah, we're not on Monday night for a subcap. It was the first day. It was May the 1st. was the first day we were allowed out in the water. And I, and I went down to the ocean to go and check it out. And it was a bit of a sort of gloomy night. And um, the idea was to paddle 10, 15 kilometers and then camp on the beach and then paddle back in the morning. But I looked at the ocean. It was all windy. And I thought, oh, and I couldn't get down to the beach because all the beaches were locked off. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll beetle it up to the lake and exactly where you and I went to go and paddle a couple of years back, um, when you came over to Portugal and had a beautiful night camping was still and absolutely stunning. And then the next morning I did a 10 K around the lake, which was stunning just before sunrise or at sunrise. Yeah, it was a fantastic return to paddling.
0: Well, um, what a great spot. And for, for people who don't know some of these Portuguese sites, it's uh, fantastic, <laughs> It's a fantastic lake. I think it's been dammed up. It's absolutely uh, still. Um, trees all the way around. Um, just absolutely glorious. So uh, I am incredibly jealous. We're uh, waiting on announcement this Sunday to let us know. But uh, as one of the uh, SUP um, sup groups that I'm um, connected with on Facebook, uh, as one of the guys on there said, the, the number of incidents involving stand-up paddle boarders and surfers are so minimal in comparison to the other water users. Uh, I think we should hopefully be allowed back on the water which is uh it's causing quite a bit of frustration i think for everyone yeah
1: let's hope so i remember reading about some chap in, in wales in cardiff bay who was out on a on a stand-up paddleboard a red stand-up paddleboard you know inflatable with one of those wings and he was caught out and he didn't have the, the news lines read sort of man on out on paddleboard without paddle so he got um, bailed up and picked up by the lifesavers
0: if, if you're not in control of the wing then you're in trouble aren't you really you just end up in ireland or
1: as far as Vim goes itself, it's really great. We're trying to build the, the community again and, and and tell people that we're back. And um, so we'd love you to share this and, and share our Instagram and our Facebooks because um, obviously we need all the help we can get to get the word out. All these amazing stories that uh, people are telling us, we'd love to share them with all of you.
0: Absolutely. And what we're all about, we're not about the elite. We're not about just focusing on racing. We're all about involvement and uh, hopefully we're producing content here which is relevant to you, whatever your level. And the the biggest thing that we're hoping to do is to produce some inspiration. So we've got some fantastically inspirational individuals that we've already interviewed and we can't wait to release in season two. This week, Nick, you are speaking to one of those elite paddlers, April Zill.
1: This is a really fun chat with April Zilg. She's such a fun person, and it was really, really awesome to chat to her. She has a list of accolades as long as you're on, but the biggest one, I think, she came second in the APP World Tour last year, and she came a whole bunch of firsts, including the Gorge Paddle Challenge, which is one thing that she's really proud of. So it's it's really exciting to talk to her about racing, about just general paddleboarding, and um, it's interesting to see what she's doing during COVID-19, because there are... Many races have been canceled, obviously, and um, they only look like they're gonna be starting back up in September, so towards the end of 2020. So she's going down, doing some adventures, and we're dying to keep in touch with her and follow her adventures. And Because, I mean, that's the thing that really gets me going. And I know it gets a lot of people going. A lot of people around the world just wanna paddle. They don't necessarily wanna race, but it's also an interesting insight into what's going on in the world tour, who she's mates with, who she hangs out with, what goes on in races, and, um we get into a very little bit of deep technical detail about how hypoxia and ice bath training. So you see how that assists in recovery processes and how yeah, What would it be like if you were a kid trying to get onto the World Stand-Up Pedal Tour? And could you make a living from it? So there's lots of things we discuss, it's great. It was really tricky because we had a big lag because she's out in the boondocks right now um, and she didn't have such hot internet connection. But So it was quite amusing at times and I had to do quite a lot of editing, but um, yeah, one day I'll release the bloopers, it's hilarious. But uh, <laughs> Thanks, Gia, April, it was lovely having you on. Here she is. Great, well, April Zild, thanks so much for getting onto SUPFM Podcast. It's wonderful to have you, how are you doing?
2: I am doing fantastic. Thank you for inviting me to talk.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, So what's going on? You were in California and now are you in Florida or North Carolina?
2: I have permanently moved back to North Carolina. Um, I spent the last two years, seven months, so almost three years in Santa Barbara, California. And it's been sunny and warm and fantastic. But the, the fairy tale had to end and uh, it was time to move back home. Not all the way home, though. So I'm not back in Wilmington, North Carolina at the coast. I, I've landed in central North Carolina to kind of uh, it's mainly support for my husband's job is why we'll be here instead of coastal North Carolina.
1: Okay. Have you got lots of places to paddle around there?
2: Uh, by lots of places. Um, there's two lakes and I'm looking at ways to make these lakes more exciting, but I will be taking regular drives down to the coast if the wind or the swell looks good.
1: Okay. So, I mean, you actually, like you said, you grew up in where Wilmington, North Carolina. What is that like?
2: Oh man. it. I actually tell everybody I'm from Wilmington, but I'm from about two hours inland in a place called Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is more similar to where I'll be living now. Um, I grew up kind of playing in lakes and rivers and a little bit of water skiing with my family, but mostly, you know, I was not athletic at all, but I did love the region. I actually find the weather here, it's really mild. It's like maybe two really cold months and two very hot months and the other eight months of the year it's really mild, it's nice and sunny, it's a good temperature. Um, the only thing that I, I see as a major difference is the the frequency of like thunderstorms out here, whereas in Santa Barbara, there was never any rain or thunderstorms to kind of force you out of training or force you off the water, which I, I think was very beneficial for my training in the last couple of years. Um, in North Carolina, you know, you just get these big thunderheads in the afternoon when the humidity gets high and you just can't go out.
1: Sounds beautiful. Sounds a little bit like Africa where I'm from originally. Every afternoon about three, four o'clock, you just get massive thunderheads and the air would be thick with moisture.
2: You know, some people buy masks and do weird things to get kind of like reduced oxygen training. Turns out training in very high humidity does the same thing.
1: Excellent. So obviously your youth, as you said, wasn't filled with sport and outdoor experiences. Um, so how did that change? Because obviously you're just outdoors all the time now, right?
2: I am. Um, I was always some, like outdoorsy but I was leaning towards I was outdoors, but doing research. So I do have my master's in marine science, um, in undergraduate school. I did, uh, I was a marine biology major and a double major in environmental studies and a post-baccalaureate certificate in environmental education. So I always worked outside a lot. I always wanted to be outdoors and close to the water and share my love of the environment with other people. Um, after, Finishing my undergraduate degree, I worked at the Fort Fisher Aquarium down outside of Wilmington, North Carolina for almost three years before going back for my master's in deep sea coral reef ecology. Unfortunately, like both of those positions were very inside. So all the aquarium stuff is, is indoors, you know, very sheltered, not in the sun, not outside as much as I would have liked to be, even though it was very hands on. And then the deep sea coral reef lab position as part of my master's was even worse. Like I was in a lab with no windows at a computer for nine to 10 hours a day. And we only went out to sea to collect data for two weeks in the middle of winter in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and that was the only time I really got to be outside with that position. And I just I didn't see either of those as being sustainable. So um I, I had to get out of there, and I went and worked at a paddleboard shop.
1: <laughs> wow, what a massive difference!
2: Yeah, you don't get paid quite as much um, being a paddler, <laughs> but I I'm more tan and I'm healthier.
1: Was that a difficult choice to make, or was it real easy?
2: Uh, it was really easy. I, I was having some health issues, kind of underlying health issues that made it abundantly clear that sitting at a desk for nine to 10 hours a day and not getting enough vitamin D um, and just kind of not living a healthy lifestyle and stressing out and deadlines. It it wasn't a sustainable way of life for me. And I would rather money isn't something that's very important to me. I know I need at least a bare minimum to survive, but if I can get what I need, the bare minimum I'd rather, like, I don't need stuff. So I don't need money to buy stuff. All I need is a paddleboard, uh, access to water, and healthy food. And I'm actually pretty happy. So, whatever job I can do that allows me to do that and just can cover, you know, like your basic utilities and a modest abode. It, it's all I need. So it was a very, very easy decision.
1: Oh, excellent. Can you take us through the first time you actually ever jumped on a stand-up paddleboard? Because it's quite a different experience.
2: I remember it like it was yesterday, actually. Um, it was, so he's now my husband. At the time, we were just dating, and we took our first kind of vacation car camping trip down to Florida. I had two plastic kayaks, and he had two mountain bikes, and we went down. And stayed at a one of his friends' house near a lake. And we were kayaking around. We were down there for a mountain bike festival, just kind of an outdoors trip. And the neighbor came over and said, You've got to try this thing. It's it's new. It's all the rage. And I did. I, I hopped right on. I paddled all the way around the lake. I'm pretty sure with my paddle backwards, but it I just I absolutely loved it. It was way better than the kayaks. So I went home that week, got rid of both kayaks, and bought Uh, a used, I think it was actually a tandem surfboard that the person sold me. They lied and told me it was a racing paddleboard, but I didn't know any better. So I bought it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So did you get into any races with this, uh, non-racing paddleboard?
2: I did. I absolutely did. Um, so I was paddling, you know, like every other day, probably between three and four times a week. In the marshes in Wilmington, North Carolina. I was just, I was loving it with my marine biology background. I just thought it was way better. The balance aspect was harder. I could see down in the water. I could see all the fish. And one day I was enjoying myself and I thought, you know, I think I'm going pretty fast. I wonder if anybody races these things. So I Googled it and sure enough, the Carolina cup was happening in my backyard, right where I was paddling when I had that thought and the race was in three weeks. So I signed up not for the three mile as a beginner probably should not for the 12 mile. Cause I realized that that might be a little overzealous, but I signed up for the six mile race. Um, I, I do not know why I didn't start with the three mile race because I don't think I had even paddled three miles total at this point, but I did. I, I found that race, I entered and I did not finish and I paddled the three mile course with my paddle backwards. And I still finished DFL, that stands for dead fricking last um, in the three mile division.
1: <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs>
2: I know. I, uh, they thought I was really fast when I came across the line. I was like, no, no, I quit. Like I, I turned in where all the three-milers turned in because I couldn't see any of the six-milers anymore. They were long gone. So I, I had no clue what I was doing. And that was evident.
1: So when was this back in, what, 2012 or somewhere around then?
2: I believe that was 2000 and uh, – it was 2012 or – yeah, I believe that was 2012. Um they're saying that this year is the 10th anniversary, like the 10th annual Carolina Cup, but it's actually not. It used to be called the mullet run. The year I did it was the first year it was ever called the Carolina Cup, I believe. But that's okay.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Because also in 2012, I read that you spent the year living and paddling in India. What um, what kind of memories stood out for you about that year and why did you head out?
2: Oh, so that means my first Carolina Cup was 2011. Ha, okay, I can never remember, but yes, I did. Um, that was again for my my husband's job, and I I decided to go with him. We were dating at the time, and it was either I stayed home and continued working in the deep sea lab, or I had the opportunity to go live with him in India and it kind of explore that area. And I'm really glad that I took that chance and took that trip because I not only did I train for the like the WPA World Championships in Cabo, but I was able to paddle in some really amazing locations like and then also share that sport with some really awesome people like Tanvi who still paddles to this day and she's spreading this message all over India that it it's okay for women to enjoy sports and to be outside and, you know, like get a tan. So, um I I just that was a really, really fantastic opportunity.
1: Yeah, she sounds inspiring. So did you do any white water supping up there?
2: Yeah. She uh, I think she did a TED talk recently and it was it was really fantastic.
1: Oh, you gotta link me up. That'd be great. Um, Did you do any whitewater sup while you were in India?
2: In India, we actually um, did some whitewater up in the Indus River um, and the Zanskar Rivers, which are some very high altitude, very cold rivers. Um, But those were just for fun in route to us setting at the time a world record for the highest altitude paddled. Um, And I think it might be the highest altitude paddled period, uh, not necessarily on a stand-up, but I think that has since been broken. Um, before that, I did a little bit of whitewater at the U.S. National Whitewater Center in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as the James River up in Virginia. So that was kind of like my background and a little bit of practice that I did there. When I came back, I competed in a few whitewater SUP events as well, which... I'm telling you, whitewater stand up is really, really fun. And I actually, a funny story about whitewater stand up, I didn't realize that it was a sport. So I saw, I, like, I was in, getting into stand up paddling and I went whitewater kayaking, you know, a few times. It was a, a kind of a side hobby, nothing that I did seriously or competitively. But I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to create a new sport. I want to make Whitewater stand-up paddling into a sport. And, of course, I run home and I Google it and I read all about Dan Gavir and Nikki Gregg at the time. And, you know, Whitewater stand-up had been a thing for years by the time I had the thought that I was actually going to, like, create a new sport. I'm like, all right, well. So that was a little little naive, uh, bit on my part, but I, I like to remember that. I'm like, I thought I was going to create something.
1: <laughs> Excellent. So let's, um, let's delve into your race career a little bit. And and you graces do some crazy things to up your performance. Tell me about ice baths and hypoxic training.
2: Um, so the ice baths, I don't really use that. They're, they're, a, they're kind of like the special sauce. And I feel like they've, gained a lot of traction, especially with the the prevalence of Wim Hof and his current popularity. They've been overutilized as a recovery tool. But all the peer-reviewed science indicates like taking things like ibuprofen or doing something like an ice bath after a hard workout actually stops your body's natural inflammation response. And it stops the natural processes by which you get gains. Like so by which you improve. You actually want to go through the natural breakdown after a workout and natural recovery. The more you cover up that natural inflammation response, the the less you're going to get out of that workout. So when I'm training really hard, I never take any anti-inflammatory over-the-counter medications and i never do ice baths when i do use ice baths it's to train for an event where i'm going to be cold already so leading into red bull heavy water i knew that the water was going to be absolutely frigid so that's a good use of ice bath training um, and cold showers. So just kind of building up my mental fortitude, kind of like just building up that ability to endure cold conditions. Um, the other time that I would use an ice bath is in competition and that's a okay as well. So if you've got a, a multi-day race where, um, you know, how Pacific paddle games used to be, one day of distance and one day of technical. Um, and a lot of the APP races have one day of sprinting and one day of distance. So when you have a multi-day race or, um, even back-to-back weekend races, so that would be when I would use an ice bath because you're not, any training you do when you race and break down your body, you're not trying to get gains from that. You're already at the level you want to be at. So the ice bath isn't hurting anything. You should already be at a certain fitness level. Um, you're not going to gain fitness from a race and bring it into the the race the next weekend. So if I race hard, um, on a multi-stage multi-day event or back-to-back weekends, I'll definitely, definitely utilize that ice bath technique to go in and stop that inflammation so that I can feel really good and go into the next race or the next event feeling fresh as if i hadn't previously raced um so that's all about ice baths uh what was the other thing
1: it was hypoxic training
2: yes um that i took a um a breath hole class with a free dive instructor a while back um with the express intent to kind of develop my co2 tolerance so uh, Book I highly recommend for athletes is The Oxygen Advantage. And that's kind of like a little primer um, on, on the breath and, you know, different ways that we can train with breath. So not just hypoxic training, but, um, you know, like breath hold, O2, because Wim Hof, he he makes you breathe in a lot and you actually are over, like, you super saturate. Um, I guess not super saturate because you can't get over 100% of oxygen, but. It is, it's more oxygenated. And then the hypoxic training was more for CO2 tolerance, which helps with your anaerobic efforts as an athlete. Um, It also was something that I thought necessary to do going into Red Bull heavy water, um, an event where I knew it was very likely that I was going to get held down by the waves. So the main reason for the hypoxic training was so that I could remain calm in a long hold down in Red Bull Heavy Water. The kind of auxiliary benefits of hypoxic training were greater CO2 tolerance in my anaerobic efforts. Um, and just kind of this this kind of is one of my secrets. I think it's a when you hold your breath, you get a splenic contraction. And so that splenic contraction puts more red blood cells into your body. Um, it's kind of like one of those things, your body, your mammalian dye reflex. It's a thing your body does to enable you to stay alive longer when it thinks you're underwater. Um, and I think if you can harness the power of that, then you have these extra red blood cells to go into a race with legal red blood cells. Um, so that's neat. I'm all about like the biohacking in very natural and organic ways.
1: Excellent. Um, You mentioned the Red Bull, 2019 Red Bull heavy water. And you also wrote, I think I was reading on your page, in San Francisco, 400 billion gallons of water flow under the the golden gate bridge every tidal cycle. So coincidentally, that's how much water the USA uses on average every single day. What did it feel like two and a half hours after the start of that race and 10 miles later as you approached the surf line?
2: It was awful. (laughs) uh it felt like four hundred thousand gallons it was um you know like if you've ever thank god i i did kind of get my start in paddling in coastal north carolina because based on what cycle the moon is in we got some pretty brisk tides in that area and so i remember when i first started paddling i would go out and if i didn't i learned to check the tides very quickly but I could go out and hit uh, like an area where it was really narrow. And if I was against the tide, I would be lucky to be going 0. 0.02 miles an hour. Literally, when you stop to take your paddle out and switch sides, if you hesitated, if you had even like a millisecond of loss when you switch sides, your your speed was negative. You were going backwards. Um, and that is what we were starting to experience um, in certain areas as the tide got even worse during that race. At a certain point, I, I remember looking left and there was this rock, like this big bird poop covered rock. And it, it was on my left. And I was like, okay, I just got to get past this rock. And I swear, like 20 minutes later, I look left and that rock is still there. Um, slightly different angle, but I'm right next to it still. And, I haven't done a race where there was so much water moving and so much convergence since I've done one similar, um, that probably shouldn't have been run, but this one, they had the safety to run it. So this one was actually okay. But this is only the second race where I was, I, I was falling in. I mean, I don't fall in very frequently anymore, But I took quite a few swims um, and mainly because of how just not the strength of the current, but when the current would interact with other currents and rocks and you're coming around these corners and there's convergence, there's eddy lines, like everything you could possibly think of was getting thrown at us. And it was It was the hardest thing I've ever done on a stand-up paddleboard.
1: Well, there was a pretty big surf that day as well, wasn't there? So how did you deal with that?
2: Um, Well, my plan was because I knew that was going to be my weak spot. The other women in the race, I mean, Fiona Wilde, who has a history of performing very, very well on the APP World Surfing uh, Tour when the waves are big, I had, uh, Shakira and Tareen from Australia who both are in, um, ocean rescue and life saving. And this is kind of second nature for them. And Annie Reichart who is training to surf jaws. So out of the women, I would consider me the, uh, the least capable of the, the large surf zone portion. So I tried to get there first, um, to the beach first. And I did. So that part went according to plan. But unfortunately, once I got there, the fog was so thick, you couldn't even see, like, you could see the shore break, which was already like six to eight feet. You couldn't even see the 12 to 14 foot waves out the back. Um, my, I, I wanted to try and I did try once, but it wasn't, I realized even if it was perfectly clear that day, it was going to be very challenging for me. Not being able to see the sets and time it was dangerous for me. So um, I was standing on the beach struggling to make the decision um, to call it to to not try again when I think most of the other women were all kind of standing there and some were attempting and some weren't. But then they called the race like it wasn't it just wasn't safe to have people keep trying in that visibility. So um, none of us made it. Torine did make it the furthest. Like I was pretty stoked. I remember screaming because I thought she had gotten out all the way, but then she got like just shoved back in by this monster outside set. I felt confident wow, if it was it's been clear that day. It was a crazy day. day. Crazy. It was a crazy day, and I I hope that they run the event again one day because I I would like to um train more, but at the same time, like I did, I went to Ocean Beach numerous times. I, I surfed in and out in that exact same spot. I w- had gotten comfortable with that area. Just nothing could prepare us for the visibility that we did not have. Um, and honestly, the way the tides lined up, we were, we should have been to the beach um, like an hour, hour and a half tops before trying the surf zone portion. It was between two and a half and three hours. Just to get to the beach so a lot of us were already pretty shivering um and all of us were were already starting to cramp up because those those tides just it really threw us for a loop to say the least uh,
1: 2019 was quite a wild year for sub racing and some of your results tell me if i'm getting this right the second in osaka open first in the new york open second at the carolina cup third of the Paris crossing second in London, and you came first in the Columbia gorge paddle challenge and the technical race for the women. So, and obviously you were the APP world tour number two, so it's a fantastic year. Is that the best year you've ever had in sub racing?
2: It is. Um, incidentally, it was also my best year ever in outrigger racing. Um, on top of all that stand up, I did the California river quest 100 mile race in my OC one, um, I took the win in that regardless of gender and craft. So I was the first human being across the line there. And then I won the Gorge Downwind Championships, which is the biggest downwind race in the continental U.S. So I was actually really, really happy about both of those results. And then it was kind of what I was focusing on last year. And kind of just as a result of focusing on performing well in my OC1, I I was able to pull off some really solid finishes on my stand up paddleboard as well. So it was it was a phenomenal year. It, it'll be hard to top that.
1: Yes, fantastic. Congratulations. How do you pick which races you enter?
2: Um I just whatever kind of entices me that year. I look at a calendar and if it kind of scares me or um challenges me, then I I sign up for it. Like Red Bull, heavy water, absolutely scared the ever-living poop out of me. Um, So I was there. Never paddled 100 miles before, so that was pretty scary, so I signed up for it. Um, I'd never done the APP World Tour, and I got an invite. So that was my first year like kind of traveling to race, so that was a new challenge for me. So I I jumped at that opportunity as well. Um, So just anything to to get out and have novel experiences and push myself outside of my comfort zone in an effort to just try to be better, um, just a better human in general and have more to give others.
1: Excellent. Um, Can we just go, uh, you were saying um, getting onto the APP World Tour that you're invited. What's life like as a professional sub racer? Are you constantly traveling from one event to the next? Or do you get time to return home in between events to to gather your wits?
2: So uh, it depends on the calendar uh, and the schedule of events for that year. There are some events that are very close, so there's not a lot of time. You literally get home, unpack your stinky, dirty clothes from your suitcase and replace them with hopefully not stinky, dirty clothes, and you head right back out the door. I've had a couple of events where the turnaround was maybe one to two days, if that, Um, and those have been the hardest for me. There's others where you get to go home and have a rest week, kind of a recovery week before getting back after training. Um, and you're just able to kind of enjoy home life for a little bit. So it, it goes both ways. You have both during the season. But I mean, there's a lot of jobs that you have to travel for.
1: What about the Euro Tour? Didn't you spend a lot of time?
2: In 2014, I did um, four stops on the Euro Tour. I might do it again one day.
1: What's it like at a race? Do you arrive, put your board in the water, paddle, pick up the trophy and go home? Or is there a great social element to it as well?
2: You know, I think that depends on the racer. Um, For me, there's definitely, definitely a, a social element Um, if I didn't have friends that I was going to go see at these events, I don't think that I would go to them. Um, I don't think that this would be a part of my life. So I like to go to races. I love catching up with everybody beforehand, um, kind of hanging out, maybe seeing some sights. Then, you know, some races after a win, um, some racers like to go out and party and celebrate And if I win, I like to go home, kind of have a nice quiet night by myself, maybe write in my journal, kind of reflect on the day, have, you know, like just a nice glass of wine or something, and then get back after it the next day. Um, I'm more likely to party if I'm really sad about my results, honestly. (laughs) Uh, But depending, again, on the event and on the people that are there, um, you know, I'm I'm going to go out and I'm definitely getting my my dose of social butterfly. And that's usually paddles before the race, which is a good time to to loosen up and enjoy your time on the water anyway. So I get to catch up with friends that are paddlers of all levels and we get to go out on the water and it's just usually a nice slow relaxing paddle for me and I get to hear how my friends are doing. Um Again, after the races, I don't usually do too much. But this year, being my first year on the world tour, I uh, I booked... Two days in each of the locations that I had never been before to allow myself to go see some sites afterwards. So in London, I, uh, you know, I went over to um, Piccadilly Square and Big Ben and Parliament uh, and kind of explored downtown London. And then after the Osaka event in Japan, I actually called up Yuka Satao and asked her. Um, If she wanted to go tour around with me all day, and she did, because she wasn't actually, even though she is from Japan, she wasn't from that particular area. And we toured around that day. We went and saw uh, the Osaka Castle, and we went to the aquarium. um, And then we went out for beers and dinner. So I I partied in my own way. And she did really, really well in that distance event. I think she got third. And so we were more celebrating her for for that and she doesn't speak really great english and i definitely don't speak japanese so it was a really fun and interesting day <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sounds super cool getting out with other other competitors so who are the other people that you hang out with on tour or the pro, other pro paddlers
2: um stephanie scheidler is she was on infinity last year i think she's gonna be on flying fish this year she is definitely one that i hang out with a lot um I've been known to, to hang a little bit with Shay Foudy, Candace Appleby, those SoCal Infinity girls. Actually, everybody from Infinity is pretty cool um, on the women's side. And uh, Shell and I, I, I call us frenemies. So we probably have more in common than anybody else. Like there's tons of people in the world. If you started listing things that we have in common versus things where we're different Um, Compared to most other humans, we're probably more alike than we are uh, different. So we're almost so similar that, you know, we both want the same thing. So there's an aspect of competition there, but we get along really, really well. Um, So we're friends, but we're friends that are in constant competition. So I'm very, very happy for her to have won the APP World Tour this year because I know she really wanted that um, she was focused and driven and she didn't do other events. Like she gave her all to that tour this year. And it, it just goes to show you, like it really paid off. Um, so yeah, I like to catch up with her at certain events. And then, um, Fiona, while she's just, she's a really great person to talk to. Um, And this is kind of telling of my age, but sometimes I like hanging out with some of the younger girls'
1: moms.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I actually get along with a lot of the moms. So Annie's mom, Fiona's mom, and Jade's mom. Um, So the moms are the greatest and uh, they're very supportive. And I literally, I I have way more in common with them than their, their younger teenage daughters. So um, I love catching up with those guys. And on the men's side, you know, Danny's a cool guy to to be around. And some of the younger kids, like Tyler Basher, he's such uh, like a smart and articulate kid. Um, I think he's going places too. He he's cool. If you need to go get like a burger or something, you can grab him um, and have a nice afternoon for sure. And his mom's pretty cool too. <laughs>
1: Uh, so on the lighter side in 2014 you won the salt life cup i believe and i heard you're racing topless in the long distance event do you remember that
2: oh goodness yes i do um that was a hoot i i have since found bikinis that do not have wardrobe malfunctions um i don't technically have a bikini sponsor but i do wear joe lynn bikinis because they're made for athletes uh like uh, the lifeguards, they compete in kind of the games, and they use the Lynn bikinis, and they stay on because I had worn a bikini that ties up top and around the rib cage. In my hydration pack, untied the bikini, and it had fallen; it flopped down, and I didn't realize it. And I was leading the draft train. And this guy kind of paddled up to my left and he was looking at me. And I'm like, well, what's going on? And I looked down and I was like, oh, that's what's going on. Um, (laughs) So I screamed back at all the girls and I said, why didn't you tell me my boobs were hanging out? And they're like, we're behind you. We couldn't see. And I was like, bullshit. But um, I had to pull off to the side and kind of re tie my stuff together. And of course the girls didn't wait for me at all. They're like, Oh, this is the perfect time for us to make our move. And they did, they freaking high tailed it while I, I put my boobs away. Um, at which point, like that was the first race where I really, really had to dig deep and come from behind. And so, you know, it, it was a, it was an unfortunate happening, but in a weird way it showed me a new side of myself and it it showed a lot of people a new side of me (laughs) that they hadn't seen before but um for me it was that i I can push a little harder and come from behind and, and make up some ground when something unfortunate happens
1: and you went on to win the race that's incredible
2: i did i was shocked um, I left my top on for the remainder of the weekend. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about sponsors earlier. Um, so who sponsors April Zilk? Uh,
2: so right now I'm still working with Salt Life. They have been, um, really great for me, really great to me for the last three years. Um, I just consider them extended family. They're just really great people. They're East coast born and raised just like me. Um, and actually the plant where they make their clothes is in my hometown where I was born. So like there's a kind of like this little connection there um, with those guys. In terms of canoes, uh, Puakea Designs is my Outrigger Canoe sponsorship. And they help out with um, just other stuff as, as it is needed. Um, I'm doing a video blog for them leading up to my Yukon 1000 race which has been postponed to 2001 but that just gives me more time to make more episodes about how I'm preparing for a 1000 mile race and all of those episodes will be up on their YouTube channel um I've got 404 for my stand up paddle boards and Hippo stick for my paddles um Black Project has been really nice to send me fins where there's nothing like official there, but Chris and the guys over at Black Project, they're so cool. Um, they're just really good people. So I, I appreciate them for the, the fins as well because they are my favorite fins and I would buy them anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> they, they send them to me if I ask nice and say please and thank you.
1: Awesome. But then I mean, we're talking about the business of, of up paddle. Do you reckon, uh, young people could look at stand up paddle racing as a career these days?
2: I honestly think that if you're creative and you love what you do, you can look at anything as a career these days. Um, I I don't care what it is you like to do. If you're passionate about it and you're doing it for the right reasons, um, then it, it can be your career. I also think that as a society, we do have to just humans, uh, human society has to get away from this idea that like tons of money equals success. um, where we got off on that notion I don't know but where we got away from happiness equaling success and if we as like a global community can say happiness equals success then I'm a very very successful athlete in my career I am very happy um I'm not loaded. I don't make a ton of money. But as I mentioned in the beginning of this, that's not something I feel I need to sustain um, my existence. So I I heard a quote once when I was younger. If you do something you love for a living, you'll never work a day in your life. And I I truly believe that. Um, And if you're doing something that you love to do, then whatever little money you get out of it is kind of a bonus. So... I don't know. Um, I, I do think that paddling is a viable career, but you just have to be creative and make it work. Um, throughout the years, I've supplemented my paddling income with numerous kind of projects. I, I wrote articles for Distressed Mullet for a little while back in the day when they first started Um, I would contribute articles to various publications in hopes that they would send me a couple bucks for my writing. Um, I've done online coaching. I've done clinics and camps and consultations for races. Uh, I've done public speaking gigs. I have worked with other kind of groups talking to small younger women uh, about goals, dreams, and aspirations. So like if you just have to think outside of the box, and again, no matter what it is you do, uh, if you carve faces into logs, like that could be a career, but just, you know, don't, don't expect to be a billionaire. Yeah. And I think you're good to go.
1: Absolutely, That's a wonderfully refreshing outlook. Thanks so much. And April, thanks so much for coming on to SUPFM FM podcast. We really do appreciate your time. Where can we find you online and follow you in the future?
2: Oh man, th- there's a lot going on online. Um, my website is aprilzilg.com, and there you can sign up for my not so regular newsletter. So that keeps you up to date on any expeditions I'm undertaking. Um, This summer, in the absence of a lot of races, I'll be paddling from my new home here in central North Carolina. I'm going to be paddling to the coast. So if you want to keep up with that, I'll be doing one pull that's Cape Fear Headwaters to Old Baldy Lighthouse. It's about 202 miles down the Cape Fear River. And then I haven't mapped the other one yet, but I believe I can get from Heiko Lake to Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. Um, So I'll be filming both of those and um, kind of sharing tips and tricks on how to do expedition paddles along the way. So if you want to any information about that or how to kind of start and plan your own expedition paddles, definitely go to my website, sign up for my newsletter. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm the only one of me in the world, so you can type in my name, April Zilg, and there won't be any others. I promise. Um, You can also follow along on the Puakea Designs YouTube channel to see all of my preparations uh, for the Yukon 1000, which is a 1000 mile race through the Arctic Circle um, from Whitehorse Canada to Dawson City in Alaska. Um, And that will be next July, 2021. Um, And then if you're interested in coaching and like kind of just more about physiology, training, uh, nutrition and just like that whole, like the racing aspect of things, keep an eye out on Monday. I will be officially launching the paddle ninja platform. So head over to paddle ninja.com and for $48 a month, you will get the first month for free. Um, but for 48 bucks a month, you'll have unlimited access to training plans, that I've built to train for all the races that we've just mentioned, um, as well as training plans from Danny Ching, Johnny Puakea, and Paolo Amiglio. So that was a mouthful.
1: (laughs) Wow, it's a lot going on. Oh man, that's been great. So thanks again, April, we really do appreciate it. It's been fantastic chatting to you.
2: Awesome, thank you again so much for considering me and having me on.
0: Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.